And I think it comes to most people as a surprise um, that the electric vehicle was actually a come and gone technology, that, that it, had, it has been here in American culture and actually looked like it was going to thrive in American culture way back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and for many people, they're not aware of that story. So I, I like telling it because it not only is a surprise to some people, but it also is a really good case study on how our dreams and wants and desires are intrinsically tied to the direction a particular technology heads. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by two engineers, Dr. Kate Frisch and Dr. Ethan Brew, and we discuss Ethan's new book on technology, engineering, and design. Even if, like me, you are not an engineer or a designer, I hope you'll keep listening, both to hear a Christian account of tech design and a fascinating case study about the failure of the electric vehicle over 100 years ago. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. In his 2003 memoir, My God and I, Lewis Smedes tells the story of how he transferred from Moody Bible Institute to Calvin College and found himself in a literature class where he learned to care about words because God cared about words. Smedes writes, The professor introduced me to a God the likes of whom I had never heard about, a God who liked elegant sentences and was offended by dangling modifiers. Once you believe this, where can you stop? If the maker of the universe admired words well put together, think how he must love sound thought well put together. And if he loved sound thinking, how he must love a Bach concerto. And if he loved a Bach concerto, think how he prized any human effort to bring a foretaste, be it ever so small, of his kingdom of justice and peace and happiness to the victimized people of the world. In short, I met the maker of the universe who loved the world he made and was dedicated to its redemption. I found the joy of the Lord, not at a prayer meeting, but in English composition 101. This quote resonated with me for several reasons. First, because it matched my deep intuition that words mattered and that God cared about things like elegant sentences and dangling modifiers. For years, I did not have any real theological resources for supporting these intuitions, and so felt that there was a tension between my creative imagination and my Christian faith. This brings me to the second reason. Like Smeads, I also attended Moody Bible Institute. At Moody, we joked that Bible, Moody Bible Institute, is our middle name, but the reality was that ministry was our middle name. Everyone at Moody was training for a full-time ministry. And so most of our ideas about vocation were oriented around preaching the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. This fit well with the tradition in which I was raised, where there was a clear hierarchy of vocation, with missionaries and ministers at the top, and everyone else who had to work normal jobs to fund missionaries and ministers were at the bottom. That made sense, 
because the only things that would last, I was told, in eternity would be the word of God and the souls of men. Everything else would pass away. I never imagined that non-ministry jobs could also be full-time kingdom service for the Lord, or that the work done in such spaces could in some way continue into the new creation. Don't get me wrong. I am deeply thankful for my time at Moody Bible Institute and for the formative influence of my childhood church on my faith. But as I've gotten older, the more I have felt the need for deeper wells, wider horizons, and theological resources to affirm the dignity of all honest work undertaken for the good of neighbor and the glory of God, and to explore what it might mean to do that work in a distinctively Christian way. At Dort, I teach many sorts of students, but I've been most consistently impressed by the ability of our engineering students to talk about the relationship of their faith and their vocation as engineers. To learn more about what it might mean to think Christianly about engineering and design, I decided to talk to a couple of engineers, Drs. Kate Frisch and Ethan Brew, about Ethan's new book, A Christian Field Guide for Engineers and Designers. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I want to welcome two guests to the In All Things podcast. The first is a returning guest co-host, Dr. Kate Frisch, professor of biomedical engineering at George Fox University. Kate, thanks for hosting with me again. Thanks for having me again, Justin. It's great to be here. And our featured guest is Dr. Ethan Brew, Professor of Engineering at Dort University. In addition to working as a professor, Dr. Brew has served as a consultant in the energy generation sector and as a research and development engineer in the agricultural, science, and tech industries. He is the co-author of a new book with Derek Schurman and Stephen Vanderleest entitled A Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Justin. Kate, it's good good to be in conversation with you guys today. It's interesting. The last time that Kate and I co-hosted together, we were interviewing Felicia Song about sort of technology and devices, but mostly focusing from the user side, the, what those desire, devices are doing to us. And this is a great sort of time to have Kate back because we're sort of continuing that conversation, but now focusing more consciously on the design and engineering side of things. So let me read, um, yeah, start out by reading from your book, just as a way to show how you place technology and engineering within the larger biblical story. Here's what you write. As extensive as the chaotic flood water that destroyed the earth was, the covenant promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ is even more extensive. Christ died for humans, for aphids, for zinc, and for everything in between. For God so loved the cosmos, not just humanity, that he gave his only son. Nothing in creation escapes the ravages of sin, but neither is anything in creation outside the bounds of the grace of God. God's love is unbounded and prodigal. The implication for engineering is that Christ cares about contaminated aquifers, jammed freeways, unventilated workplaces, and disfigured mine sites. God loves water, roads, warehouses, and mineral fields, and he also loves us in our brokenness and our potential. So first, that's a beautiful bit of writing, uh, but the scope of the claims, I think, might surprise some readers, and I wonder if this is maybe a way into and a taste of the worldview that upholds this book. Could you say more about 
why you wrote this and how this extensive vision shapes your work and this book. Sure. I think there's something about good books in general. Um, good books always get bigger. Um, the best books, uh, they almost frustrate you in a, in, in a good way. Um, just when you think you understand them, they get they get richer every time you read them. You see new things. There's more layers. You, you all of a sudden, like, oh, I didn't notice that before. And you're almost like, well, why didn't I? Why didn't I go through that and see that before? I say that um, because I think John 3.16 for me has grown probably in the same way over the years. I wouldn't always have described the message of John 3.16 that way. I, I, I hope right away, I, I hope by unfolding it this way in the book, that... I don't in any way diminish John 3.16 for people. That's one of the things I fear in many ways, because I don't want to ever diminish this wonderful, sacrificial love of Christ for us, his people, um, displayed at Calvary. So, in the end, Jesus loves me, this I know, and John 3.16 says so. And I think, don't lose in all the details of trying to re-describe it that critical, important truth. Um, that hasn't changed for me. But that said, what what continues to haunt me in a good way is the poetry of the of the testaments of scripture, both new and old. It seems to suggest that that grasping this width and depth and height of God's love is is not easy. Like that there's more to it. Like it's gonna take some time. You're gonna have to chew on this for a while, it seems that scripture says to us, and and that there's more than meets the eye. So if somebody asks me what John 3.16 means, I probably would say, I got a couple other pictures. And one of the pictures I'd offer them would be Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'd say, if you really want to know, well, I actually use the same passage to say, if they're asking me deep questions about Genesis 1, 2, uh, I tend to point them this direction as well. Uh, those are passages we tend to overthink. And I love the song in Colossians that just simply says this, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Um, in him, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And then in thing, him, all things hold together. And then it goes on to say, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this is where the roadways and the sodium chloride, and all of that come into the picture. Reconcile all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there's John 3.16. So I see this merging of those two things and in, in passages like Colossians. It makes me see a wider and deeper John 3.16. And then if that's not enough, I love, I have to intersect this same John 3.16 with one of my favorite biblical books. And that's the book of Jonah. I know it's it's really, it shouldn't be my favorite because it's so tragic. Um, it's such a sad story. But I, I love in many ways how it ends. It's, it's heartrending, but it's this picture. And I think it's John 3.16 again. It's God speaking and he says this, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who are all messed up and a bunch of cows as well. Should I not care about even that city? And when I hear city, as an engineer, I'm thinking people and buildings and roads, and God lets me hear cows as well. And I think God is calling us into that kind of picture.
It's beautiful. Yeah. And it fits. I mean, the name of our podcast and of our journal is In All Things based on uh, that passage and that sense that God is renewing all of creation. All of creation is being healed and we get to participate in that. And I love the fact that your book offers us uh, for this particular part of creation, for this those who are called to, to be engineers and designers, especially, uh, yeah, a way into that. So can you tell me a little bit, Ethan, about um, why you guys settled on calling it a field guide? I mean, it's a really broad book. It covers a lot of different things, a lot of different topics that are relevant to engineers. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, why a field guide as opposed to maybe like a guidebook or a handbook? Or, um, you know, what does the title communicate about your hopes for the book, you and Stephen Derrick? You imply, Kate, that that we settled on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean, they public there's printed copies of it now, so yes. Yeah, yeah. A, a title Someone ended- settled on something. Maybe it's your editor that settled on something. I don't <laughs> a know. title ended up on the cover. That's how I'd like to describe it. So, and that's good because we don't want to have multiple multiple titles on the same book. I guess, um, even though it could. But yeah, I won't bore you with all the debates we had as authors. I'm sure whenever you write a book with co-authors, which was a great process. I mean, I look back on it and I say, this was wonderful to have Christians with different postures and positions and approaches to the world, all trying to wrestle with the same issue. It doesn't mean we came to consensus. Um, even on the title, it means that we probably disagreed in the end. But there was something beautiful about having three different members of the Christian community writing this book together. So um, I think your question is a good one. Because those other words actually went in and out of our title many times, too. Some of us wanted more elusive title. Some of us wanted more descriptive title. And we debated on, you know, guidebook or handbook. I suppose guidebook fell out um, because some of us felt we didn't have the wisdom to rightfully say, here's what you need to do. Um, that was it, We really stepped back feeling a lot more humbled by the process of writing than we did um, empowered by it. Uh, so that's probably why we steered away from guidebook. It felt like it was going to tell the answers. Probably field guide from felt more like this. Um, you're on this journey, and here are some of the things you might see along the way, and pay attention, and take notice, and look closer. Um, more than meets the eye, I think is sort of the sense we wanted to give. I mean, everybody, everybody on a journey sees birds. Um, yeah, there's tons of birds, right? But not everybody sees hawks or eagles or finches or. Orioles or, you know, and that's what a field guide does. You can go ahead and still see birds if you want. But if you're curious enough or you're asking more questions, the field guide can actually help you see hawks and eagles a little bit better and and distinguish those things. So that's probably (laughs) you can tell that we talked about this a long time. So, Ethan, there's this great part in the book where uh, you all mentioned that when we say technology, we tend to be talking about things that weren't as widespread when we were born or when we were growing up. And so you give the example of if a worship team prays before a church service and prays, you know, let the technology be okay. They usually mean wireless monitors. They mean webcams. And they don't really mean let our pew Bibles and our eyeglasses be okay, even though those are also forms of technology. And then you also later on in the book uh, cite Borgman's idea of the device paradigm where we have technologies that deliver some sort of value to us while hiding the inner workings. So rather than chopping wood and lighting a fire, I just press a button on my thermostat and it magically delivers heat. And it had me thinking about the way that technology makes itself invisible um, by kind of weaving itself into the everyday rhythm of life. 
And on the, the podcast that Kate and I did with Felicia Song, we talked about implications on this from the user side. But I wonder what are some of the implications of the invisibility, the tendency of technology to become invisible from the engineering and design side? Yeah, I really appreciate Borgman's insight into technology and culture. And I've used many of his ideas in my teaching as well. I just think he really uh, is, is cognitive of what's going on as a philosopher in a technological world. And so I've really appreciated it. Um, one of those themes that sort of parallels, I think, what he's getting at here is a critique of modern technology specifically. I think modern technology, and when I say modern technology, I'm probably saying, okay, let's roughly land on the next, in the last 100, 150 years. There's a certain character of that technology in comparison to all other technologies from so many different cultures and so many different places and times that's unique and that's different. And it has a particular energy or movement that comes with it. And I think Borgman sort of uses two words to describe this. He suggests that modern technology seeks after transparency and control, and that the technological artifacts that come out of our modern era quite often have these uh, this baggage, maybe I would say, um, in one sense, transparency means everything has to be start with this scientific understanding that we know everything down to the very details. Once things are transparent to us, and we're desperately trying to make the world transparent in front of us, then we take all these pieces that we know, and immediately the assumption is we can piece it back together. In other words, there's transparency and then there's control. Not only do we have power in knowing, but we also have power in dictating where our knowledge ends up. And so those two fundamental objectives or outcomes of modern technology seem to drive where we end up a lot in our modern technological world. And he suggests that it's the this root that really is the problem with our biblical understandings of technology. And that is, the gospel message is this, we live in a real the real world, the kingdom world, the world in which God invites us into is a world of contingency, dependency on him and grace, not of control and transparency. And so then he wrestles with how, how then will our technology look? Will we shape it differently with an understanding of contingency and grace versus transparency and control? Do you, do you have a specific example of what that might look like? You know, you know, pick, pick something. Let's, let's, let's suggest, um, I don't know, something is, something is, uh, ordinary as the, the home thermostat. In some ways, it's invisible. It's behind us. We don't really know anything other than I'm comfortable or not in this room. And we know that it has some power to determine my comfort, right? But other than that, it just does its thing in the background. It's invisible um, other than the times where I do feel Unless you have a six-year-old who really wants to know. <laughs> That's right. Yep, exactly. That's a whole different interaction with technology. So. And I applaud that one. Um, what would it look different? What, what could a thermostat, how could a thermostat look different? I mean, that's an interesting question to ask. Um, in a modern world, it shouldn't look different than what we see it. In other words, the engineers know what it takes to move energy into a room and they design this little gadget on your wall to do it for you. Um, they have the power. You have this idea of control. That's all you need. You feel like you control things, but you really have no clue what it's doing in the background, right? So 
again, we have this modern paradigm playing through there. But what if, what if we actually shifted that thermostat into a different device altogether? A device that actually calls you into the question of energy, calls you into that question of my comfort and the world's energy availability? Okay, what if the thermostat was a countability device? What if you went to the thermostat and it didn't just give you 72 degrees or 68 degrees, but it actually gave you an assessment of in the last three days how much you used? Uh, maybe we would all ignore it. I mean, that's that's possible. Now, what if you step back and you created a thermostat that actually gave you a budget? And you, because you really felt like you cared about the environment, said, we're only going to use this much this month. Now, wouldn't that message be hammered home pretty hard? If you started to feel cold at the end of the month because you had set a budget, you had a desire to care for the creation, and your thermostat allowed you to take that desire technologically technologically into your room, and now it actually interacted with you, had a conversation with you, the creation, and your comfort that a previous technology didn't allow. Have you have you thought about like pitching that on Shark Tank or you know something like that? As a... I don't know. You'd have to have a culture that wanted that, that desired that, that felt strongly enough about it, right? I think there's a lot of people that just dismiss it. No, I want it to be invisible, right? But that is a cultural choice too, right? Yeah, it just it it highlights the way a point that you you all make over and over again in the book that our design the design choices reflect values, right? They're not neutral, but they point us in a direction. And they don't determine us, but they do privilege us in particular directions and encourage us to value particular things. And so that's something that's really important to know as a designer or as an engineer. It's also, I think, really important for users to know, Yeah. Um, too, because, you know, kind of like that conversation we had with Felicia, Justin, you know, it's really easy to not question, you know, what your thermostat does or where that energy comes from or you know, those, those kinds of things. So kind of with that, Ethan, you know, one of the implicit focuses in the book is the idea that engineers should design for flourishing. And then you talk about the flourishing of people, but also the flourishing of God's creation. Um, It seems like flourishing can be a little bit subjective, right? Everybody has kind of their own definition, even in the Christian community, or maybe especially in the Christian community sometimes. Um, So some might think of it in terms of, for example, personal liberties, others maybe in terms of environmental consequences, like we were just talking about, um, and others still in terms of racial racial justice, and we haven't even scratched the surface of all the different things. Um, So how would you recommend that someone develop a biblical notion of flourishing, whether they're an engineer and a creator of technology or just a user of technology? I know, that's a... Ah, a rich word, flourishing. Um, <laughs> and then also students, you know, I, I, being a teacher, you get the flack for using words that you use all the time. And they can, I love it when they actually mimic me. There's certain things I say in front of class all the time. And then, you know, if they have me enough, they, they, they get it. I'm going to say this word at this time. Um, flourishing is one I think in our community, Christian community now is probably one of those words that they probably could give us a little hard time for. But I don't want to let it go yet. I sort of had to let go another word that was uh, the word shalom had to, I I think it got a little tiresome for people. So I had to let go of that one. 
and was I, that the t-shirts that said shalom yada 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 was that, was so. that the clue okay you know but you know in some ways it's it's the same thing i think the christian community desperately needs to a word like shalom and flourishing and i'm going to resist defining them until we get another word um it sounds really weird i just think we need a few words like that that are so layered they they need long conversations to flesh out and they never the definition never ends that we just pour more things into them i think we really need words like that i it's flourishing is one of these words where we just simply run out of words in our language to to, to describe it so we just say flourishing and you know class is about to end and i i don't know what else to say so flourishing and and go out you know um i say it with tongue in cheek a little bit but the reality is i think there's something good about words that are that deep that can't be mined by in a single generation that actually need to be changed because I think Shalom and flourishing actually are really close cousins. Um, but I think it's good. We leave one and we add another. And then I hope a new generation adds another one that they can't define as well. Is it subjective? Yes. That's what I've been saying. You know, it's subjective. It's full. And I'll be honest here. Personally, I can't define that word without my understanding of the trajectory of scripture. So flourishing has no meaning for me apart from the biblical narrative. Now, that sounds really parochial. You're just saying, Ethan, now you've taken the word and you've owned it yourself and you're not going to let anybody else use it. Um, And that's not exactly the case. I'm just saying you have to actually step into my story and step into my world a little bit, the best I can understand it, to understand what I mean by flourishing. I think that's helpful because I actually have to do that for other people when they use the word. And I do think it's a word that carries... It carries weight outside of our Christian community as well. I I think we begin to see that the word flourishing, as much as I need scripture to define that for me, we find out that our brothers and sisters from other traditions who may not fully agree with our biblical trajectory also need the word flourishing to describe a destination, where they're headed, what they see as the end outcome, even in technology. What are we shooting for? there's surprising agreement quite often on what we see as good, even with different perspectives. Um, but I think it's fuller and richer for me when I can fully bring it into that biblical trajectory. So I wonder, are there images in scripture that you're particularly drawn to? Um, you know, if, if we can't maybe get precise language for it all the time, are there particular images that you think, that's an image of flourishing. Maybe not the only image of flourishing, but that that's an important image. I'm trying to think of, you know, one or two good ex- examples or images. I say, you know, we go to the book of Revelation, and I definitely would say the images of fruitfulness and growing and all of those things that uh, when we see death and decay and then we see trees of life, and uh, chaotic waters that are no longer there, and all of these kind of these kind of images are flourishing images. Now I've got to unpack that. I've got a lot of other stories to describe that throughout Scripture, but I do see flourishing is when brothers who once were apart can talk again. Flourishing is when rejection is now acceptance. Flourishing is people that think they were undeserving now being invited mm. as invited guests. I mean, there's just all of these pictures are social, they're ecological, they're economic. Um, those that have not have 
um, come eat freely. Um, those who have no money, come and buy. I mean, mm. that's a flourishing phrase. Yeah. And so. Yeah, one of my favorites is an image that a student, my research assistant, uh, recently reminded me of from Zechariah, where it says that the streets of the city shall be full of children playing in the streets. And, um, you know, what needs to take place, right, from um, an engineering perspective or a design perspective <laughs> so that children can play in the streets safely without um, without fear. And it seems like scripture is full of images like that. Isn't that interesting? I love, I love that. I can't help but play on your play word here because one of the things we talk about in history of science and technology is the reality of the last hundred years. Play has had, had a different definition. So the creation or invention of modern sport and athletics is actually a covered in our history of technology texts. In other words, we didn't always play systematically like we play today with leagues and rules and, and systems and schedules and those kind of things. And I'm, sometimes when students think about that, they like, hey, wait, is play the sound of children playing in the streets now exchanged for the sound of the practice that you don't have time for, that you're driven to do five times a week and drive so many miles to get to, oh, I'm just, I, I better be careful. I'm not critiquing the involvement in those kind of sports, but I do recognize that our culture has systematized play. That's a technological concept. No, I, so I've scratched the surface of that just a little bit in some other reading that I've done and, and play our current definition of play, right? Like I'm going to go play baseball. I'm going to go even, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not the same as it's historically been, right? Like it's that it's more that image that Justin, you were just talking about. Yeah. There's a lot there. I think in that idea of play, maybe even play being part of flourishing in a way that we've sort of systematized out in the 20th, 21st centuries. Don't get me wrong. I love sports, but I do think there is something to be asked of what does it mean to flourish in mm-hmm. modern sports systems as well. Yeah. I wonder, maybe that's a way into the next question because, um, you know, you have play, which is just this very primal human thing. In fact, I read once that that's one way that relief workers can tell if a refugee camp is healthy, if the kids in the refugee camp feel like they can play, um, Mm. the kids feel safe enough to play. So like play is sort of the canary in the coal mine, right? That lets us know if we're capable of flourishing. And yet play gets kind of conscripted in other cultural layers, right? It gets turned into a commodity, gets systematized, as you've said. And I mean, there's something about that that is normal though, right? It's not necessarily the fruit of the fall. It's just when humans live together, we tend to make complex systems, you know, um, that are complicated. And, uh, and so any kind of technology that we create is always going to be subject to uh, yeah, market forces, supply and demand, interests. And you have this really interesting case study about electric vehicles. And I wonder if you could just tell a little bit of that, about that case study and some of the lessons that you encourage us to learn from it. Sure. That's a good segue. Um, yeah, from maybe an aside that we were going on a long play route. But <laughs> in, in some ways, it's it's the perfect start to a study of the history of the electric vehicle. Now, just saying that history of the electric vehicle, people are thinking, well, what is he talking about? I mean, that's just 10 years old. I don't need to talk about that. You know, really, you know, has the electric vehicle been around for for that long that it has a history? And I think it comes to most people as a surprise. Um, 
that the electric vehicle was actually a come and gone technology, that, that it, had, it has been here in American culture and actually looked like it was going to thrive in American culture way back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and for many people, they're not aware of that story. So I, I like telling it because it not only is a surprise to some people, but it also is a really good case study on how our dreams and wants and desires are intrinsically tied to the direction a particular technology heads. Um, and so if somebody was going to ask me then, okay, okay, tell us the beginning of the electric vehicle, I'd say, hey, do you ride a bike? And they'd probably scratch their head, yeah, whatever, what, what, what does that matter? That doesn't have anything to do with uh, the electric vehicle. Well, yes, um, it actually has a lot to do with the demise of the electric vehicle in, in many ways. Not that they were competing, but that they embodied a different ideology, a different vision for the future. The electric vehicle actually always did and still does now has a bias toward doing really good local transportation well. And that's exactly what it did in the early 1900s. It was like the perfect fit for the new electric generation system that was based in cities. Everybody had their own power plant generator in the middle of the city and it generated power for the locale. All right. We have now this huge grid. We don't even know where our energy comes from. It's different in the early 1900s. So there you have electricity. People are asking the question, what do we do with electricity and how do we get around better in this city? And uh, the electric vehicle made complete sense. We don't have to go very far. Certainly batteries can't hold a lot of charge. Um, but paired next to this central city generation system, we have the perfect situation. In the day, we can use electricity for buildings and industry. And at night, we can charge our vehicles that we need to get around in the city. And you had this perfect win-win that we've always been searching for in engineering. So it seems like techni technically like we're ready to take off. Like there should be no other answer. This is the path we're on. It fits perfectly. All the future is leaning toward electric vehicle. But come about 1905 or later, all of a sudden... We see no electric vehicles. You know, what's going on here? Parallel to this, and culturally parallel to this, is this odd thing called the bicycle craze. And specifically the safety bicycle craze. So the safety bicycle, people don't usually call it anymore. It's the bicycle we know. It has the chain and the two small wheels. It doesn't have that big wheel in front and the small wheel in the back, the dangerous bicycle. Um, so the safety bicycle came in. And the beauty of that was it was this egalitarian technology that invited men, women, children, and all to simply pick up a piece of technology and take off. And they literally were in control of when they wanted to take off, where they wanted to take off. Um, it, the technology was economically you know, viable for everybody to own one. You know, all of those things played together. And what's driving it is this. We are getting tired of the industrial center of the city. This is a place and a space that doesn't seem fit for flourishing, for good human living. There must be something out there. Okay, the wilderness, um, the non-urbanized, the, the non-city area that we could get out to, that we could become more human, that we could celebrate, that we could recreate or recreate. And so the bike was their technological path to getting out there, to, to picnics, to seeing nature in its non-altered form and all of this. So, okay, so now you're getting, okay, this is, imagination is being woken up in people's mind. What does transportation and my recreation have to do with one another? Now, you can see that as people started getting out, 
there's this longing for getting out further, out to more wilderness, out further and exploring and just finding the fascination that lies beyond and getting out from the humdrum of everyday life. Now, here's an electric vehicle sitting in the background and it's stuck in the city because it works best in the city. It does its best work in the community, which people are trying to say, the goal of humanity is to get out of there. All right. So now you starting to set the table now. You can see where automobility comes in. You can see where the internal combustion engine with its intrinsic ability to store a ton of energy on board and take you far away, all right, way outside where you're trapped and gives you as an individual the most net freedom that in transportation that you've ever had. It's never been that they couldn't get somewhere else. They always could via train, even via steamship, via the rivers, canals. There was always ways to get somewhere else. But there was never this technology that enabled the individual, that agency, that freedom to get out and get away that the bike and then the internal combustion engine automobile allowed. Meanwhile, it's a story of electric vehicle it simply lost out because the imagination got too strong in one direction and we lost our imagination of what city life could and should be. No, that's so fascinating, Ethan, with, you know, that history. And it was one of the things in my mind with electric vehicles right now, right? Like I live near a big city and right, like there's plenty of pollution and stuff going on here. We live in a valley and we get inversions all the time. And, you know, you know, we're going to keep the masks here because you want to be able to breathe on really bad days sometimes. But, you know, it was, it was fascinating to me in that discussion in the book where you talked about all of the environmental problems associated with the previous mode of transportation and that maybe, um, you know, emissions from cars didn't even register because on the scale of, you know, all of the urine and um, feces and all of that from, from horses, um, I thought that was really kind of insightful in terms of also that imagination in our current current moment. Um, but kind of with that, you know, as we're in the moment that we're in now, where people are thinking about all of the emissions from our vehicles and, and what we do, obviously, you know, EVs are getting a lot of attention. My family is thinking about an EV. We've been thinking about it for about six months and uh, in keeping with Steve's suggestion in an earlier chapter. Uh, yeah, we do have a decision matrix looking at all the different different options out there. But as that momentum is gaining and, you know, more options are coming on the market for EVs, um, you suggest in the book that, you know, the, that our dream of automobility has really been shaped by the internal combustion engine, you, like you were just talking about. But you also hint that you wish that the EV was being more radical in reshaping that imagination. And so I'm curious. You know, how do you wish that the current iteration of the electric vehicle was reinventing the car market or reinventing our dream of automobility? Yeah, I think this. Um, I think the Teslas and the companies that are competing at the front edge of electric vehicles are still trying to play out the narrative of, of fast and far. In other words, that's very true. The electric vehicle is not only marketed, but it's shaped. It looks like it looks like the internal combustion engine. It doesn't let doesn't force us to let go of a dream that we can go as fast as we want uh, ahead of anybody else on the freeway. And all of these things that the internal combustion engine brought for us, um, we're trying to play the same game. 
And the problem is, is that the technology doesn't lend itself well to that. Now, I'm, I'm amazed and I think there's great ingenuity in how far they've come. Like, yeah, how fast they can accelerate and how far they can go. But it's not the best technology. And I wish that we maybe re- would rethink transportation, our imagination regards to transportation itself, before we started to try to take an old dream and try to place new technology on it. And new technology that's probably not going to fit as well, even long-term. I know there'll be advances, and I'm not opposed to the electrification. I think there's some really good things there. But I'm probably going to go back to how blind we were with the internal combustion engine, right? We think we're solving problems, and I think we are. So I'm all behind the decarbonization and those opportunities that electrification can bring. But I think we're always going to be blind to the new pollution problems that exist in the backdrop. And I still have a lot of questions about 10 years from now, 12 years from now, what are we going to do with all the batteries? We have hopes that we'll have really good recycling means by the time we get there. But we've had hopes for some things that never really materialized as well. And so some of those questions, I think, should haunt us in a good way and make us more cautious and then ask us to rethink. Maybe we should focus on electric vehicles that fit the city, where first and foremost, we need to clean up the air and people generally travel short distances and we've got a perfect fit. So let's let's go back to an old model, maybe the 1905 model of how we do electric vehicles that does look different than the Tesla internal combustion engine electric that we seem to be promoting. That's some of the thinking I have behind a good technology that could be maybe qualified or nuanced a little more. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So kind of following up on that, you guys talk a little bit about technical optimism and or technological optimism and technological pessimism, um, particularly transhumanism and uh, technological determinism. How do you see those playing into this vision of cars and and how do you personally balance those things as you wrestle with the role of technology in your own life and in your own family's life? I sometimes think we wrestle what's easy to write about two distinct, seemingly opposites, like, okay, optimism, pessimism. It just makes sort of a nice divide. We can look at both of them. Um, I wonder if we could ever break it up into not just two directions. Sometimes it seems like a magnet with two poles who either are too pessimistic or too optimistic. And I think biblically, the narrative invites us into like, this sounds strange, but like there's good optimism and there's bad optimism and there's good pessimism and there's bad pessimism. So I, now I have four directions <laughs> just to confuse things. Um, I read the Tower of Babel story and I know I'm supposed to like shame on you humans, but I, God gives us this odd picture about how he reacts to it because I know the God of judgment could have responded very differently to that technological artifact. We see a God who sees a problem in the works, right? And one response is just to, he could have just destroyed it and said, be gone, tower. This is not a good direction. It is done. But this is, the picture is, God goes down to see the work. That's just sort of strange. Like, God goes down to see the work. And then as he looks at the work, it's almost like he scratches his head and says, hmm, these humans are like pretty creative. Like there's like nothing that's going to stop them. Um, they're like 
pretty good at what they do. But and at the same time, he says, but they're going in such a wrong direction. There's no way I can let this go on because their own, the, their own goodness, their own creative ability is just going to get them in trouble when they're pointed in the wrong direction, when they're pointed in the way of, of hubris and they're pointed in the way of bad optimism. You know, if we could only build it this high, then we would be, uh, that's really optimistic, right? You want to sort of praise them for it, you know, like, hey, good, at least you have high goals, you know. But God sees that bad optimism, and it's not necessarily pessimistic on the technology itself, the doing of technology. At least I don't get that. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just find that maybe as a story that helps me understand that biblically, we can balance, I think, good pessimism, bad pessimism, good optimism and bad optimism, and sort of hold it loosely in our hands as well. So that's probably, it's probably not a balancing between optimism and pessimism. I think it's more of a, it's going to cut through in, in all four directions there a little bit more. So Ethan, you and your co-authors have written this book, um, but you know, I always think about Paul's idea of the Corinthian believers being his living letters. Um, and so you teach, and this could also actually be a question that Kate, you could, you could answer too as someone who also teaches engineers. I wonder if you could identify one or two or three attitudes or practices that you would hope that Christian engineers would embody in their life so that whatever they do, wherever they go, people who maybe don't read the book could sort of read in their lives a sort of direction or design. What what would you say would be your deep hopes for the engineers that you get to teach? And I'd love to hear both of you actually uh, riff on this a little bit. So does that mean I get to point to Kate and make her go first? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think just, just the understanding that the choices that my students make in technology influence people and influence society. I think it's really easy to lose sight of that. I think it's really easy for the students. I mean, it's easy for me to lose sight of it, right? Like, the biases in my technology, you know, even just, I mean, we see this, I have small kids at home and we have smartphones and there are days I ask a lot of questions in my head of, you know, what, what are the biases and how is this, how is this shaping them and how is this shaping their imagination? You know, those, those kinds of things, they're so subtle and they're so insidious. Um, You know, and I watch my students, you know, do the same sorts of things and interact with their phones and not each other, or, you know, even just, you know, in my senior, a couple of my senior design projects this year, thinking outside themselves has been a challenge, right? Like I have one group that's doing something where they need to, um, where the, the size of the hand matters. They're like designing things that people are supposed to hold. And, you know, it's five males, all, you know, at least five foot 10. And um, every time I'm like, um, but, but they're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That. So I think, I think there's that kind of piece of things of just that awareness of technology is so, has so many implications that you don't see that aren't obvious to you and your worldview. Right. Um, it's so true that it's so true. I mean, Kate, you just can, it's hard for us to see through the technology to the world. Um, and I think that's the one thing. Can you make um, technology translucent? So you're not staring or fixating on it, but you're seeing who it's serving behind. 
and you're seeing the world around it. And that's, that's an art, right? That, that takes some intentionality because we do love creating. I mean, it's so much fun. You can get fixated on developing, creating, right? So. And it's so easy to see just you in, in what you do. Well, isn't that true? I mean, in some ways I want to apologize for that, but that's, there is so much of the artist that truly is wants to express yourself. I think that's also in technology too. We see um, most clearly our experience in the world. We don't necessarily have to apologize for that, but we do have to recognize that when we begin to get myopic and understanding that this is going to serve other people, but we've designed it for ourselves. That's the danger. So can it have both, both a personal expression about taking our very experiences, whoever we are and bringing it into a, technological form, but then can also listen to those who are going to be using it all, who are going to use it. I think the one thing I have to always say, you know, it's so so dangerous to always feel like you have a lot of boundaries and rules and things to watch out for. I think we talk about those a lot. Like, I want to make sure I send the students out saying, you know, don't feel guilty about joy. Technology always gets this everyday ordinary, you're just doing stuff to to serve people and heal needs and all the stuff that a broken world needs. And and like, there's also this delightfulness Hmm. of putting something together and hearing it just click and hum and work. And when you hear that, just say amen or just laugh or, you know, be able to do that as well, I think is also something I would love Christian engineers to take with them Hmm. as well as the burden of healing the world and wanting things to be different and all of that as well. So Mm. our guest has been Dr. Ethan Brew. The book is a Christian field guide to technology for engineers and designers. My co-host has been Kate Frisch. Ethan, Kate, it's been great having this conversation with you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Justin. Yeah. Thank you all for this conversation. listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.